The well is an ordinary place that takes on extraordinary meaning through encounters with Jesus. Join Father Anthony Messer from St. Timothy and St. Athanasius Church in Arlington, Virginia, in search of transformation, healing, revival, and refreshment. Good morning to everyone and welcome to The Well here at STSA. To all those who are joining us here in Arlington, to those who are on the other side of the camera in Leesburg or watching at home, wherever it is you may be, we're glad that you're here as we are continuing a series called The Tabernacle. And in case you're wondering to yourself, what is the tabernacle? And it seems kind of a boring subject. Stick with me. We're going to talk four weeks about the tabernacle. Last week was week one, then this week is two, and then two more after this. And I bet you by the end of it, you are going to be excited and eager to learn more about this piece of Old Testament furniture that doesn't seem very exciting on the surface, but hopefully by the end of this four weeks, you will see a different side of it. But before we get into the tabernacle, let me tell you a true story. Well, it's not a true story. It's, it's a non-true story, but it's based on a true story. And it's about a boy and a girl who fall in love. Best way to, oh, I already got an awe oh, and I haven't even started the story yet. Okay. Boy and girl fall in love. And they meet each other and they fall in love and they love each other and they want to live together, spend the rest of their life. And they got plans to get married. The problem is they live in different countries. So the plan is you are going, the, the guy says to the girl is that you are going to finish up what you need to do in your country. And then you're going to move to my country. And I'm in the meantime going to be working on building a big fancy house just for us. And he goes through all the details and he does all the planning and he builds a house and it's this big, huge house. But it's not the size of the house that makes it special. What makes it special is that every detail in the house is planned out very carefully for one purpose, to maximize their intimacy together. So for example, he knows that they're going to spend a lot of time together in the bedroom and that's going to be their quiet little oasis. So he makes sure that painted her favorite color. So that anytime she's in there, she's just happy because it's her favorite color. And then, you know, he pictures the two of them sitting on the porch together, okay, on those summer nights, whatever it may be. So he gets one of those porch swings. He knows that she'll love that. It's be a place that we could really connect with each other. And then he knows and his girl, okay, she loves to go shopping and she's one of those I love Costco kind of people. Okay, so he's going to build her a big pantry in the house, not because the, the, he wants a lot of food, because just the two of them, but he knows that she enjoys going to Costco, so this can be something we can do together. And every detail of the house is planned for the sake of their intimacy together and their fellowship and the time they spend together. But a problem, when it comes time for marriage, they get, get married, but her problem is her immigration doesn't work out quite yet. She can't come quite yet to live with him in his country. So they have to be apart. So he says, okay, you know what we'll do? Because we're married, I'll come and I'll move to your country. And we'll live there temporarily, just temporarily. And he tells her, okay, you're in your country. I'll tell you a house to build. It's not gonna be the same as the one that I'm building over here. This is our permanent place, our forever house, okay? This is the place that's gonna be perfect, but just build something makeshift to that, that, that and I'll come to you and we'll live there. And he tells her, what to build, what materials to use, who to hire. And of course, he sends the money to, to build it as well. And even though the house isn't the same because they're in different countries, so there's different laws and different requirements, different regulations. The structure is the same. The feel is the same. The thought behind it is the same. The reality is not quite the same, but it's the same idea and mindset behind it. And he says to her, you build it. I'll come to you. We'll live together until we can move 
to the permanent home one day. That, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly what the tabernacle is all about. The tabernacle, which was commanded by God to be built in the Old Testament, is a taste of our future home in eternity with him forever. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. God tells Moses to tell the people, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. In other words, what God is saying, we talked about this a little bit last week. From the beginning, God's plan was to have communion with man, to have fellowship, to have intimacy, to have nothing between him and man. He planted a garden. He said, okay, this is actually where we're going to do. He prepared a garden with the river, with the mountains, everything like that. Adam and Eve, perfect. Me with you, you with me. It's going to be perfect. As we know, if you read the Bible, past page two, you know, it didn't work out so well. So instead of God scrapping the whole plan, God said, okay, you know what? Sometimes you want to go a straight line, doesn't work. So we're going to have to maybe go around a little bit. So God planned the incarnation, which is sending his son into the world to become God and man united in him. And the tabernacle, is version 1.0 of the incarnation. The tabernacle is version 1.0 of the incarnation. It's the first time since the garden that God said, I will dwell among man. And that's why God commanded Moses. First, God told him, take these people out of the, out of the slavery so that they can spend time worshiping me. Give them the law and the commandments so they know what life is like in my kingdom. And then he says, build a place for me. And if you build a place for me, like the groom in the story, build a place, I'll come, we'll live there until one day I take you to your eternal home up in heaven. Because as we saw last week, our, th our key thought for this series is very simple. God's desire isn't just obedience from us, it's intimacy with us. And that's what the tabernacle is all about. God's desire isn't just obedience from us. If his goal was just obedience from us, here's the 10 commandments, here's the law, do it, Glory be to God forever, amen. Let's go have lunch. But God's, God's goal wasn't that. God's goal was, here's the law. Here's what I want from you, but here's what I want to give you. I want to give you myself. Think about it, parents. Okay, this is like parents should be intuitive to us. We do a lot for our kids. Okay, we pay for a lot of stuff for them. We provide a lot of stuff for them. We take care of them. We give, 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 give. The goal isn't just for them to clean their room in the end. The goal, that's hopefully, Okay, a step along the way, but the goal is in the end that there's a relationship between us, that I pour myself into my kids and that one day they want to spend time with me and have inv and invest in this relationship as much as I've invested in that one. Same is true with our relationship with God. And I said this last week and I'll repeat it again. I hopefully I repeat it every week in this series. If you are missing the fellowship, the intimacy, if you are missing the fellowship and the intimacy, if you are not investing and caring and working on the fellowship and intimacy, if you're missing that, you're missing the whole thing because that's like the whole deal right there. So like if you're obeying and you're striving and you're struggling and you're not focusing on the intimacy as the result of all those things, you got all the bad part without any of the good part because it's the intimacy that makes the struggle all worth it. Because it's the intimacy, it's the fellowship, it's the communion. I'm using those words interchangeably. That's where we get the comfort when we are troubled. That's when we get the guidance and the clarity when we're confused. That's when we get the joy when we're down. Like that's the whole deal right there. And that's what the tabernacle teaches us. So today what we're gonna start to do is we're gonna go inside the tabernacle. I told you there's three sections to the tabernacle and each week we're gonna take one section and we're gonna go deeper and deeper into the fellowship with God 
ultimately ending the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, that's the destination. Okay, that's the picture of, of, of fellowship between God and man. That's where God dwelt. We're going to go step by step to go inside. And what we're going to see is every detail of the tabernacle, like the story I told you in the beginning, had one purpose. God put it there for one purpose, to teach us how to have fellowship with him. We'll keep that in mind. A couple of verses to set us up here. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11 and 12. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. See how God says, I will walk among you. Next verse, Deuteronomy 23, 14. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Camp meaning like the tabernacle. Thank you. He walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy so that you may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Those two verses, why I pulled them is because they both talk about how God is walking among the camp, walking among the people. You're a Jewish person and living in the Old Testament and you hear, maybe not, you're a Christian person, okay? You're you and you know the Bible, book of Genesis and Exodus and you hear God walking among the people. You automatically think of what? Where did God first walk among the people? Garden of Eden. It says that God walked, okay, it's in Genesis chapter three. It says, it says when Adam and Eve sinned, they heard the sound of God walking in the cool of the day, okay, in the garden, God was walking. So what God is trying to, 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 to put inside their minds is, look, fellowship, Garden of Eden, I walked among you. I walked among men, that's the goal. Now things have changed. Okay, you're in a different place. You're in a foreign land. You're in the middle of nowhere. But I'm still with you. And I'm still walking. And I'm still trying to have the same intimacy because that's the goal of the whole thing. Tabernacle is the picture of that intimacy with God. If you want to see a picture of a tabernacle, okay, this is roughly what it looked like. Obviously, it's a drawing. It's not a picture because there was no pictures back then a million years ago. The tabernacle is basically a compound. It's a, a fenced-in area with a portable tent. That's basically what it is, okay? It's a wooden structure with these different coverings and curtains that cover it. Okay, that tent in the middle right there or at the top of the screen. That tent is called the tabernacle, and the whole area is called the tabernacle, okay? We kinda, like I said last week, it's kind of like the church. I'm going to church, okay? Let's meet in church. Means it could mean in the parking lot of church, or it could mean at the front door of church. And then when you're in the parking lot, you say, let's go up to the church and pray means the sanctuary. Well, the tabernacle was the same. So when you hear the word tabernacle, it could refer to that actual tent piece, okay, or the entire compound together. Like I said, every detail planned by God, all about how to have communion with God. Today, we're gonna take the first section. The first section is called the outer courtyard, okay? And that's everything outside of that tent, of that wooden structure. That wooden structure, that, the, the tent piece, the tabernacle, We'll take that over the next two weeks because so that has two sections inside, the holy place and then the holy of holies. So that's section two and section three. Today, we're going to focus on the outside and there's really three items, three things on the outside and we'll learn about each one, what it is and what God is trying to teach us from it. The first thing, okay, is a zoomed in shot that you see is the gate, the first piece of furniture. It's not really a piece of furniture, but it's the first thing that's on our list right here, okay? The gate was a 30-foot entry at the east end of the tabernacle. Okay, one key difference between the tabernacle of Old Testament and the church of today. Okay, you'll see a lot of similarities, the structure of the three sections. But today, the church faces east. The tabernacle faced 
west. Okay, one major difference. At the east end was a 30-foot gate, and this was the only way in or out of the tabernacle. Now, this is strange because the entire perimeter, I told you all last week, is 150 by 75. Okay, it's a rectangle, which means if you do the math real quick, that's 450 feet of perimeter, and the only way in or out is 30 feet on the bottom of one end. Clearly, there was no fire codes back in those days, okay? Because it would not have passed. This gate was always closed, but never locked. It was always closed, but never locked. Meaning what? Meaning you could come in anytime you want, but you had to do something to come in. You had to open the door. You had to take a step. You had to make a decision. You had to be proactive in some way. What was the decision that you had to make? Well, as soon as you entered the gate, you saw the second piece of furniture, which told you what that step of action was. The second piece of furniture was the altar. Okay, the bronze altar, like I said, the brazen altar. Brazen just means made of bronze. This is where the majority of the action of the tabernacle took place. 90% of the work and the action and the, and the things going back and forth was right here at the bronze altar, which was a wooden altar covered with bronze. It was not made of bronze. It was a hollow wooden box made of a special type of wood, acacia wood, but it was then covered with bronze. We'll read about it here in Exodus chapter 27, verse one through three. It says, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be a square. Its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horn on its four corners. Its horn shall be one piece with it. Cubit, sorry, I should have told you this. What is a cubit? How much is a cubit? Anyone know? Elbow to the fingertip? Maybe. Okay, I don't know. That it seems could be. It's one and a half feet. Okay, a cubit is one and a half feet. Maybe that's how they measured it from the elbow to the, the fingertip. I don't know. It sounds it sounds very spiritual, okay, but I would imagine there would be differences between people's elbow. Anyway, it's about it's a foot and a half. Okay? So when this says it's five by five, how high is that? Math majors. It's not six, okay? It's, Five by five would be seven and a half by seven and a half. Five cubits is seven and a half feet, okay? Yeah, you might have to take your socks off on that one to do the math, okay? But just trust me on that one. And then it was three cubits high. This one's a little bit easier. Three times 1.5. 4.5, okay, very good, all right? Next series we'll do will be about numbers, okay? Something, a book of numbers. So this thing is huge, what I'm trying to say. This thing is seven and a half feet Okay, this is more than my, my arm span right here. Seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet high. This thing is huge. Why does it have to be so big? Well, what happened on it? Okay, we read it right here. You shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. He didn't tell us what is being done on there, but he said to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. What happened on this altar? Why did it need to be so big? What they put on the altar? Animals, bulls, cows, big old animals. And that's why it says ashes. Ashes of what? Not like the, not like the, the Catholic, the small little ashes and it's very nice and it's cute. Ashes meaning like when we burn the heifer, okay? All the ashes that remained around it. You got shovels. What are the shovels for? For all the bones that may be lying around to scoop up those bad boys and throw them away. You got basins, you got forks. You know what forks means? Like pitchforks. Why? Because you got body parts strewn all around. You got blood, you got guts. 
there's a liver, there's a kidney, the pancreas is right in the middle of the whatever it may be. So you got stuff all around. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading this, I made this big fuss about how the tabernacle is the presence of God. And it's the glorious place, the majestic place of God's presence on this earth. And the first thing you walk in the door and you see blood and guts and smelly and carcasses and rotten and disgusting. Luckily, there's one more piece of furniture that we're going to talk about, which is after you pass the altar, you see the... Oh, sorry. That's a picture of what the altar would look like. There's the blood and the guts and the pitchforks and the disgusting... Okay. Yuck. But after you pass the altar, you see the laver which again is called the bronze laver because it's made of bronze. The laver was a basin of water that stood between the altar and the tabernacle, which again means that tent, and it had one purpose. What was the one purpose of this laver that was filled with water? Exodus chapter 30. You shall make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in the water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. After the blood and the guts and the gore and the yucky and the filthy, God put a basin of water for cleaning. And all the clean freaks say, thank you, God. Order is restored. I knew God was a clean freak. I knew God wouldn't allow his house to be that messy for long. That's the outer courtyard. You got a gate. You got an altar of, of sacrifice, the, the bronze altar where the sacrifice took place. You had a bronze laver where washing took place. Let's go back through the three of them now and try to understand a spiritual lesson that God is trying to teach us with one central focus. Intimacy is what it's all about. Let's go back to the gate. The gate is the easiest one. When you have a long perimeter around this huge place where God's glory dwells, but you have this tiny little door in the middle that says what? It says there's only one way into God's presence. There's only one way into God's presence. And the symbolism here is very easy. The symbolism here, what is the one way? There's only one way to God the Father, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said this in John 14, 6, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the gate. He is the gate to, through which we come to God the Father through him. I'll give you a fun fact about the tabernacle. Like I said, 150 feet this way, 75 feet this way. So that the square footage, okay, those who know square footage, that is 11,000 square feet. That's a big office space, 11,000 square feet with only one door. If someone tried to enter the tabernacle from any other way other than the gate, they would be punished by what? Death. They try to sneak under? Death. Try to jump the, the, over the top? Death. Try to cut a hole in the middle? Death. Only way into God's presence is this gate. Any other way is death. It reminds me of 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Notice here, the fulfillment is not saying, if you don't have the son, I kill you. He's saying very simple. There's only one path to God the Father. And if you are not on that path, you're on the path of death because there's only life and death. So if you're not on life, you're in death. And that's what God was trying to teach us here with this gate. When it comes to worshiping God, here's our lesson for this. When it comes to worshiping God, 
I'm going to tell you something. The lesson God is trying to, very un-American what I'm about to say. Very un-21st century what I'm about to say. When it comes to worship, we are rule followers, not rule makers. We are rule obeyers. We are, I'm sorry, we are obeyers. We are not commanders. Chose that word. Foreshadow football season to come. Okay. We are obeyers. We are not commanders. There's a word which many of us, if you grew up the way I did with two Egyptian parents, if you grew up with two Egyptian parents, you heard a word growing up that you hate. Okay? You heard, well, you heard many words that you hate, okay? I repeat all of them, okay? You heard a certain word, the word I heard, which symbolizes this which you hate. And the word is malish. Repeat after me. Malish. No, ma lish. Leesburg, I want to hear you too, everyone. Ma lish. Ma lish on the surface sounds very nice because what it means is, I'll try my best to encapsulate with this word, it means no big deal. It's okay. Don't worry about it. The problem is the way the word is used, it's used when I do something wrong to you, not the other way around. Like it should be used, you do something wrong to me, no big deal. Malish, not a big deal. The problem is the way it's used is I do something to you and then I tell you, no big deal. <laughs> For example, I tell you, we agree, let's meet at six. I show up at 8.15, malish, that's the first thing I tell you. I tell you, you just wasted two hours, malish, it's okay, no big deal. Thank God for the day that you have. Your friend owes you $20. He gives you 20 Egyptian pounds. The exchange rate is 40 to one. He gives you that and he says, malish, it's not a big deal, take it easy. You tell your kids, whom you love dearly, to clean their room and to pick up the towel off the floor, the wet towel, which you can, it's just disgusting, a wet towel, on the, hypothetically, of course. A wet towel on the floor means mold is going all every place in the house. Okay, that's what that is. A wet towel on the floor is a mold magnet. And you tell them, pick up the towel off the floor, it's destroying our house. And they, who don't speak Arabic, have <laughs> received the gift of tongues and tell you, Malish, not a big deal. It's a dangerous word when we apply it to our relationship with God. It's a dangerous word when we apply it to our relationship with God. God says X. I think Y. Malish. God says fasting. Just something simple. Fasting is this way. I come and say, I think it should be this way. It's okay, malish. God comes and says, giving. Giving is very important, because giving, giving. And you say, well, I have a different way of giving. I give my heart. That's funny, I give my heart to Jesus. And Jesus says, I got you covered on that one. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you say, malish. He yelled, you understand, God. You understand. It's okay, malish. Don't worry about it. Prayer. I'm not saying there's only one right way to pray, but I absolutely believe there are many wrong ways to pray. You know the wrong ways to pray? Is when you give God not your best. And you say, okay, my best time, that's for checking Instagram. And then my freshest time, that's for responding to whatever. And then whatever left over, I give it to God. Malish, it's okay, 
Not a big deal. That's okay. Yesterday, um, me and Lizzie, me and my daughter, were watching a TV show together. Um, and, and in it, there was a lady who basically she's got, so this lady was, um, I don't know the whole story. So basically, she's living in sin with her boyfriend. Okay, they were living in sin, and she didn't want her parents to find out. So her parents, they picture them as like the stuffy Christian, whatever, the judgy, whatever it is. And then they catch them and they see that they're living together. And then the girl goes to the, the dad, says, dad, yes, we're sleeping together. And I've decided it's not a sin. Okay. And then they all, it's like a live studio audience. Okay. This, I, we watch shows from the nineties. Okay. We don't watch them. So it was live studio audience. So everyone was like, and that was like, uh, yeah, she did it. She declared that it's not a sin. I hit pause on the DVR and I went to Lizzie. Okay, we had a theology lesson at the moment. What's mean it's decided it's not sin? It's not your choice to decide it's not sin. That's the world that we live in today. I decide it's not sin, so it's not a sin. No, it's still a sin. Like if I decide I'm a giant, it doesn't make me a giant. If I decide I can slam like a basketball, it doesn't mean I can slam like a basketball. I don't go to God and say, God, I'll tell you what's sin and not sin. God tells me. There's only one way into God. I'm not a rule maker. I'm a rule obeyer. Obeyer, thank you so much. Okay. When God commanded, earlier I showed you the verse where God told Moses, tell the people to build a sanctuary and I'll dwell among them. That was Exodus 25, 8. The next verse is a very important verse. God said, I build this and I will dwell among you. Build this and I will dwell among you. Next verse, verse 9. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. I want to dwell among you. Okay, great, God, let's build this. No, 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 no. I tell you, not you tell me. I tell you, this is how you do it. You don't tell me. You don't give me your leftovers. You don't give me your worst. You don't come up with a plan and tell me. I tell you, because I care about you and I know what's best for you. Parents, how often do we say that? We know what's best for you. Kids don't tell us what they eat, we tell them what they eat. Kids don't tell us when they go to bed, we tell them when they go to bed. Kids don't tell us which teeth they want to brush and what days they want to brush, we tell them you're brushing today whether you like it or not. You do according to the pattern that I tell you, but somehow, when it comes to us and God, all of us, we think we're rule makers. There's only one way, and the way is his way. There's only one way, and the way is his way. And I'm not saying it'll be identical for all of us, okay? I believe in generally it will be, it'll be similar, okay? There's, there's general principles, but I believe there can be individual. I'm not saying it like that, but my point is he says it, not me. And if you ask God, Okay, what is the way? What is that one way? Like, I want to walk into your presence. I want to walk through that one gate. What is it that I need to do? Well, that takes us to the second piece of furniture, which is the altar. As soon as you walk through that gate, as soon as you take that step, God will make it very clear. The one way to me is very simple. It requires sacrifice. That's the way in. That's the path to the presence of God. That's the path to communion, is there must be sacrifice. For the Israelites in the tabernacle, it was a literal sacrifice. For us, it's a spiritual. Nobody sacrificed any of their animals when they go home today. It's a spiritual sacrifice. There's two ways you can look at this sacrifice. Okay, obviously there's a, there's a million ways, okay? Because everything here, when it's symbolic, has infinite meaning. So the easy way to look at it is the sacrifice, okay? If you say sacrifice on a piece of wood that leads to communion between man and God. We could talk about who sacrifice. What is that? That's the cross. Okay, so the one way of looking at it is Jesus himself. 
was the true lamb of God without blemish, sacrificed on the altar of wood. Okay, and this altar was built up on like a, a, like a little mound, so it wasn't like on the ground, so the cross was up high. And through that, fellow, through that sacrifice, we have fellowship with God, through his sacrifice, through his death. But that's not gonna be our focus right here. I wanna talk about a different kind of sacrifice. His sacrifice is the first. But every good gift deserves a return gift, right? That's why you keep track. When you do a little party, you, someone gives you a gift, you write down what they got you. So at their party, you get them equal or slightly greater value. You never do too much. Okay, so, so when God's sacrifice deserves a sacrifice from us, because you know this, you know this. One-way relationship doesn't work. One-way relationship where all the sacrifice is one way. All the giving is one way. All the investment is one way. You know that that doesn't work. We come into God's presence. We want to receive peace, love, power, joy, grace, wisdom. Great, 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 great. Like I said, that's why we do it. But when we come into his presence to receive those things, we never come empty-handed. I'll give you two passages from the Old Testament. Exodus 34, 20 says it very bluntly. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Nobody just walked in. You didn't walk into the tabernacle and say, okay, I'm going to stroll on into the Holy of Holies. No, 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 no. You're going to pass the gate. First thing, you're going to pass by that brazen altar. You don't got anything for that altar. You turn around and you go back. You get something and you come back. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Book of Sirach, chapter 35, says it a slightly more detailed way. The one who keeps the law makes many offerings. The one who keeps the law makes many offerings, offering sacrifices. Do not appear before the Lord empty-handed, for all that you offer is in fulfillment of the commandment. None appear before me empty-handed. There's some people that you may know, we all know some people, you may be some of these people, okay, and these are great people to know in life, that when they come to your house, they always bring something. You know people like that, okay? I'm not one of those people, okay? I've, I come to your house all the time, I never bring anything, okay? And a lot of people insist on it, and you're like, no, 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 don't bring anything. No, 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 I'm bringing... What can I, don't bring anything. And they insist. And they're going to bring something. They're going to bring something. And I, and anyone who comes to my house, you don't got to bring anything, okay? Because we don't need anything. We're good to go. But I do appreciate the effort. Not that, but listen carefully. I'm not saying I appreciate the gift. Most likely your gift, Marianne would be mortified if she would say this, but she's out of town so I could say it. Most likely your gift will end up in the re-gift pile, okay? Unless my name is written on there somehow, okay? So we don't appreciate the gift, but we appreciate the effort, the thought, the love, the investment. I think God is the same. I think God is the same. God doesn't need our gift. God, doesn't, God needs the bull. Like, why did God command the sacrifices? To control the bull population? Too many cows? Like, God was trying to, like, God doesn't need any of that stuff. God doesn't need grain. God doesn't need anything. But it's a sign of my love and my investment and my appreciation. Because as the saying goes, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You've heard that before, right? You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. That's why the starting point to the presence of God is to pass by this altar of sacrifice. And I want to spend a little bit of time right here, and I promise I'll go quickly on the bronze laver, but I want to spend a little bit of time right here on the altar, and I want to ask you this question, and I want you to be honest with yourself and ask yourself this. What am I holding on to that needs to be sacrificed? What am I holding on to that needs to be sacrificed? You may not realize it, but there may be something 
You want the presence of God. And I'm talking about the presence of God and the joy and the comfort and the peace. And you're like, I don't get any of that stuff. I don't ever experience that. Well, the first thing I'm going to ask you is, are you holding on to something that needs to be sacrificed? Because maybe what happens is you enter the tabernacle and you're headed towards God, but then there's this big altar in front of you. You try to go this way and you can't. You try to go this way and you can't. So you get to this altar and the priest is like, you got to sacrifice here. And you, and you turn around and walk back, holding on to what you came in with. For example, I'll give you just a few options of what it could be. Maybe it's a lifestyle. Maybe it's like a habit. Maybe it's like a mindset. Maybe it's a, this is my life. Okay, I'm going to be me, you know, uh, you do you, I do me, YOLO, whatever it may be. Like, that's just like, like, that's the way I live my life. And that's what you're going to hold on to. And you're going to convince yourself that it's no problem. And you're going to convince yourself that it's okay. And you're going to convince yourself of that. But in the end, if you're honest, that lifestyle or habit is blocking your path to the tabernacle. It's blocking you from getting there until you let go of it. You want to see the presence of God. You want to enter. You want, but that is going to be blocking you. Maybe what you're holding on to is a desire to achieve blank. A desire to achieve something. Something where you say, okay, tell me if you've ever said this or thought this. I should have blank by now. I should be blank by, I should have gotten there by now. I should have done this by now. I should have achieved this by now. And that could be anything. That could be career. That could be family. That could be, you know, like future plans, like your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, whatever it is. Maybe that desire to achieve is blocking your path to the presence of God. And I got something right here, and I'm going to just say this, okay? I'm saying this out of my heart for love. So don't, no one get offended by what I'm about to say. I'm saying this because I care. What I see a lot these days, I'm going to do a special warning here to the ladies a special warning here to the married ladies. A special warning here to the married ladies with the kids. Maybe even not with the kids. But I see a lot. I hear a lot. I hear a lot. And I see a lot these days. This. I don't know what out there is talking to you. I don't know what out there is telling you. That your family should look this way. Your kids should look this by now. Your kids should be like their kids. Your family should be here. Your marriage should be there. You should. I hear a lot of that. And I hear some stuff that mortifies. And you think to yourself, that is what I'm saying to you. That desire to achieve that, that somebody told you about that isn't God. Desire to be a certain place. That's ruining your life. And that's ruining the people around you's life. And until you sacrifice it. Could be a fear. Could be a grudge. Could be an ego. Could be an apology. Could be a bitterness. Could be a comfort. Could be, could be anything. I'm not telling you what it is for you. All I'm saying is this question up here on the screen. What is it that I'm holding on to that needs to be sacrificed? I'm telling you the answer to that. On the other side of that may be fellowship with God. Because the principle is a very simple principle. You hear me say it all the time, especially every time we do a baptism. The principle is this. In order to receive something new, I must let go of something old. In order to receive something new, I must let go of something old. In order to receive something new, I always say this every time we do a baptism, because baptism is all about letting go of the old and receiving the new. So if I'm wearing a shirt and I want to receive a new shirt, I must take off the old shirt. If, I'm if I want to receive new shoes, unless they're clown shoes, I must take off my old shoes, okay, before I can put on the new shoes. Well, if you want to receive a new level of intimacy with God, a new fellowship with God, you want to go deeper in your relationship with God, nine out of 10 times what's holding you back is unwillingness to sacrifice and let go. 
You know, I think of here, when I think of sacrifice and letting go, I think of St. Mary. You know, we're in the time and now the fast of St. Mary, so we're talking a lot about St. Mary. And I told you all last week that St. Mary, the tabernacle was a type of the Virgin Mary as well because she was the unity of God and man inside her. She was the physical tabernacle where God dwelt among his people. St. Mary had a great... But did St. Mary had to let go and sacrifice anything? She had an easy life, right? Man, St. Mary was tough as nails. St. Mary from the very beginning of the whole story that we know, but just what we know about her, had to let go of her reputation. Because when, when the angel came and said, you're going to have a baby inside you, her husband, betrothed husband, said, I can't, uh, I don't know where this baby, baby didn't come from me. And her reputation, the people, you know, some cultures do that. She had to let go of her reputation. She had to let go of her comfort. You think it's easy? You think it's comfort? You think a, a donkey ride as a nine-month pregnant lady to a little town of Bethlehem, you think a donkey, you think it was first-class donkey? She had to let go of her comfort and be willing. She had to let go of an easy life. Okay, the one thing we know that was prophesied about her is that a sword is going to pierce your own heart. That was what was told to her. Because you know this, especially moms, what's the most painful thing you can endure in life? It's one pain to your son or daughter, okay? Pain to your child. That's the most painful thing. And she was told from the very early, you're going to have a very painful life. Here's your baby. Here's how you change the diaper. Okay, here's how the, you need the vaccination shot. You're going to have a very painful life. Congratulations. Sign right here. You can take the baby out of the hospital. But that was St. Mary. And while we talk about letting go of something and the thought of letting go is a scary thought. What's going to happen if I let go? I know it's a scary thought. We'll go to our final lesson, which is that labor, that basin of water, which tells us this, is that sacrifice always leads to revival and refreshing, not regret. Sacrifice. It's a scary thought. If I let go of, if I sacrifice, what's going to happen? I'm going to let go. I'm going to regret letting go because I really wanted that five-year plan. I really, like, I'm going to let go. It's going to be bad. Sacrifice always leads to revival and refreshing, not to regret. This is my life story. So this is very easy for me to talk about. I talk about it all day. I grew up thinking that you had to have God or fun in life. You couldn't have both. I grew up thinking that you had to make a choice. So to let go of, to have God, you had to let go of fun. And to have fun, you had to let go of God. That's how I grew up thinking. That's how it was presented to me, not in those exact words, but that's, that's just what I thought. So I chose for the majority of my teen years, Okay, till I was about 20 years old, I chose fun because I didn't want to let go of that. And then eventually I made the decision to say, you know what, I want God. And what I discovered is actually it's not God or fun, but it's God and fun. And I will say when I die, like my message, like everyone has like a life message. My life message is simple. God and fun. That's what I want. Put that on my tombstone. God plus fun. That's my message because it's not God or fun. It's God and fun. Those who give up and those who sacrifice, you're thinking you're letting go. Truth, you're actually receiving much more than letting go of. The bronze laver teaches us that. Why? Because earlier we saw the altar, the blood, the guts, the disgusting, the gore, the whatever it may be. And then is the washing and the cleansing. Can you imagine? Okay, I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed, I'm a clean freak. Not because I'm a strange person, but because I'm a godly person and everyone knows that God loves things clean, okay? Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's in the Bible. Just trust me. Can you imagine 
how disgusting it would have been to have been a priest back in those days. And you bring me the bull and I put it on the altar and I touching stuff and, and ah, like I'm the kind of person when we used to have a dog, like I, I, like I feel like I have to shower after picking up the dog poop, okay? With the, like I, that's me, I'm like, ooh, it's gross, it's gross, it's gross. But that, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. But thank God that after the disgusting, the blood and the guts, the pain, comes the labor for the washing and the reviving. It's exactly like when you are dirty and sweaty and you take a shower. That's what happens when we sacrifice. We're gross, we gave up, what's gonna happen? And then that shower cleanses us. And I'll show you a nice verse here from Acts chapter three, verse 19. It says, repent therefore and be converted. Repent can be like, let go. Be converted that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So I wanna ask you the same question I asked you a minute ago. I wanna ask you it, but I wanna add part two to it. The question I asked you earlier is what is it that you're holding on to? I wanna say this now. What am I holding on to but then B, what might be on the other side of letting go? What revival, what refreshing might be on the other side of letting go? This is a true story. I have two friends who are not related to each other, but they become friends kind of like we've all become friends with each other. Two friends who are to say successful in life is an understatement, extremely successful. Each of them, on their own, built very successful uh, businesses and, and uber successful, workaholic, okay, big house, whatever it may be. And they built themselves up to be very, very, very successful in life. But that success, as you can imagine, comes at a price. And the price was often their family. The price was for sure their relationship with God. And even more sure was their peace. Okay, the stress and anxiety that it came with. And each of these friends over the course of the past year decided on their own, okay, but we were all friends with each other, so we kind of talked to each other through it, to sell their businesses. Sold everything that they had. They took what they sold. They made very generous contributions to this church, which we thank them for tremendously. Very generous contribution. And then they said, you know what? We're not going back into that world. We got rid of it all. And each of them made a decision that they're gonna scale back in life and they're not gonna be uber successful. And they might venture into here, might take a little bit of time off, they know what they're gonna do. On the surface, it looks like they gave up a lot. But if you ask each one of them, as I do, because I have conversations with them, each will say the exact same phrase, best decision ever. Best decision ever. Because now, exactly, someone said free. Now they're free, okay? And I'm telling you stuff that they've said, okay? I'm just accumulating this, 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 what stuff. Now they have peace of mind. That's b both would say same thing. Peace of mind, time with family, ability to read, ability to rest, ability to focus. I'm just putting this on the list because that's what they said. Ability to listen to my wife. That's what each of them said. Okay, before when they were in that state, that the words may go here and kind of weave their way around, but now the words go here and actually sink. They can listen to their wives again. Outside, they gave up a lot. Inside, they say, what I gave up was actually what was killing me. I didn't sacrifice anything. I saved my soul. Now they're living in refreshment and revival and connection with God. And what I'm saying for you is God wants the same for me and you. He wants that revival for us. And that revival is his greatest desire, but it only comes through the door of sacrifice. 
So the question I want to leave you with, again, we are not rule makers, we're rule followers. I don't make these rules. If I can make the rules, intimacy would come through sleeping in and having a lot of chocolate ice cream. Like that's the way I would make intimacy with God. That's not it. The rules are intimacy comes through sacrifice. The question that I have for you is, are you willing to let go? What is it you're holding on to? And then B, what might be, just imagine, what might be on the other side of you letting go of that thing that you're holding on to? God is inviting us to greater level of depth and intimacy, but he tells us the first step is sacrifice. Next week, hopefully we'll all have come in without, after passing this altar, and the altar's blood and guts and it's dirty, but then we're going to enter that labor. He's going to wash us, and now we can enter and see step two into intimacy with God. So I hope you'll join me back next week for that. Let's stand together for a prayer. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you have given for us, too much for words to even describe. I pray that you would help us all to see what sacrifice you want from us, what you're commanding us for our own sakes, not for your sake, but what you're telling us for our own sakes, Lord, will lead to that refreshing and revival that our heart so desperately desires. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the intercessions and prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the King. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart, and we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.